Before we start, we want to say a quick thank you to Wharton Fintech's Platinum Sponsor, the Stevens Center for Innovation in Finance. The Stevens Center is a premier research, education, and thought leadership institution in the world for financial technology. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Wharton Fintech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Everett Cook, co-founder and CEO of Rowe Business Banking, a New York City-based company offering banking services to SMBs, including corporate cards, payments, and expenses. The company has raised close to $20 million from leading investors, including M13 Ventures, Torch Capital, Inspire Capital, Interplay Ventures, and Mike Bogan. We talked about Everett's journey from Wall Street hedge fund analyst to startup founder, what inspired him and his co-founders to launch Row, why SMB banking in the U.S. needs a refresh, lessons learned from clients and investors over the past couple of years, and a lot more. And now join me in my conversation with Everett Cook. All right, Everett, welcome. Welcome hey, to Miguel. the world. How are you? Good. How are you? Excellent. Excellent. Happy to have you here on the Words and Fintech podcast. Maybe we can get started by hearing about your background. We'd love to hear about your journey and how you got to uh, becoming the founder, co-founder of Rope. Yeah, absolutely. I graduated college in 2007 and was really interested in finance. I had traded stocks when I was a kid from like age 15 to until then and was obsessed with markets and finance. And so when I left school, I got a job on Wall Street. I worked at Deutsche Bank. I was in leverage finance for about a year and a half, which was really exciting, really busy the first six months that I was there. And then the financial crisis hit and was really depressing because we couldn't get anything done. You know, after that, during that period uh, and post sort of during the middle of the financial crisis, basically, I was reading a lot about the market and about the the investors that sort of saw it coming. And I was amazed that like more of the people that I was sitting around at the time, like didn't see what was happening or what was what was going to happen, weren't able to do anything about it. And so I gravitated towards macro investing. It's like, look, these are the guys, you know, guys like Stan Druckenmiller, you know, legendary hedge fund managers, like absolutely saw this coming. This was not something that was like unpredictable or, you know, one in a million type event. It was very much understandable. And I made the move from like investment banking to macro. The first job I got in the space was working for a portfolio manager at SAC Capital, which is now 0.72. I spent about two years there and then led and co-led research at several other hedge funds, culminating in being a PM at part of Tudor Investments at the end of that. That was all about, you know, 10 years. And then really like saw that there was just this opportunity to redefine financial services as we know it in fintech and uh teamed up with a co-founder uh, and we started building row fascinating and how would you say those last i guess 13 years or 12 years on wall street on on different sides on the private side on the public side how have they prepared you for now this entrepreneurial journey that you're embarking on I think markets is one of the best places to train yourself in terms of taking the leap as an entrepreneur. You know, it forces you to think hyper rigorously. There is no ambiguity. You're either right or you're wrong at the end of the day, especially in public markets. And you have to 
think in a way that is different than others, right? You can't just follow the crowd. If you follow the crowd, you will definitionally be the average. The game of investment management is always to be above average. And so that means that you have to constantly be pushing yourself to try to develop a variant perception on the world, whether it's a single security, whether it's a macro economy, or whether it's like a space in the startup world. And so I think that that sort of thought process is like almost identical to what it means to, to build a startup, right? You have to come to uh, come up with a thesis and how you're going to execute it and present that to investors. And if it's the same pitch they've heard 10 times that day, you're probably not going to be able to get your project off the ground. Now, there's a lot more to it that comes after that that is very different than investing. But certainly in terms of like developing a vision and developing a differentiated point of view and sort of defending that view and presenting it, I can't think of a better place to build out the markets. And certainly like fintech and markets are obviously very, very correlated. There's a we are in the financial services industry. And there's been a lot of a lot of fintech entrepreneurs that have come from the hedge fund space from the very early days, you know, people like Peter Thiel to now. So I think it's a fairly well-worn path, but uh, definitely some a lot of differences as well, though. So let's uh, let's talk about role, right? I understand it's a neobank for SMBs, for corporates, right? But I'm sure it yeah. goes beyond that. It does. What we are for our customers is basically their finance platform, right? We're a modern banking platform. What that means from a business perspective is, yeah, we build the same way from the same like sort of regulatory structure and that companies like Chime build from. We have a sponsor bank. We work with them. We build software on top of financial services to help our customers accomplish their goals in a way that's much better than traditional financial institutions can provide, right? We are fundamentally a software and service company. And we believe both of those are equally important, whereas banks are fundamentally a financial services and sort of risk management company. So as we think about what it is we deliver to our customers, you know, we deliver banking, we deliver like parts of lending, and we deliver software that helps teams work better together with money. And we believe that is the secret sauce in terms of like what will win the market over the next 10 years. Financial services, checking accounts, or, or lending is increasingly commoditized. So what matters is Less so those specific products, although you have to be excellent at that. That's like the starting point. And more so like, how do you help people do more with that? Today, as we think about like the bank account, I think about it, and this was true two years ago when we started building this company, and it's true today, is in a lot of ways, like the least connected piece of sort of plumbing within like the company. You think about like how smart CRMs are and how well connected they are, how smart like ERPs are and how well connected they are. And then the, the bank account is really just this bucket for money today. Everything kind of plugs into it. You get data feeds out of it, but it's not really connected. The problem with that is it actually is connected from an operational perspective, right? Everything the company does has an impact on the bank account. You pay somebody, money goes out, you get revenue, money comes in. And so it is the source of truth for the company. So our view is like, let's make this as smart as possible. Let's create really intelligent controls, permissions, reporting out of this, and let's keep building products adjacent to it, like accounts payable. Because we believe that that stuff works better in an internal ecosystem than having 20 different products that connect to your bank account with different permissions that you have to pay for that are just fundamentally like makes it hard for you to see what's actually happening in your own company. Right. So I worked in, in a corporate bank in the past and you know there are dozens of products that you can offer to your clients, right? Yeah. Take us through the menu of your current uh, products and why did you decide to start with this specific products? This is always a challenge in the space and in, in any startup, right? Is you do need to be really disciplined about what, what you build. I would love to build, you know, dozens of products, but and thankfully my co-founder is like a 
sort of the best chief product officers out there, in my opinion. You know, he was chief product officer at a company called List, which he helped scale. He was chief product officer at a company called SmartGits, which, you know, he was employee number 17 and grew to like two or 300 people at the time. He and I always like debate this. And generally it's, you know, me saying like, we should build something and him saying like, we can't build everything. And, you know, we need to pick one thing at a time. He's usually right. Today, so we're parsimonious about what we build, but we do want to keep growing sort of the suite, you know, one step at a time. In terms of today, what we offer to our clients, yeah, we started with sort of the basic corporate checking account. Then we added treasury management accounts. So companies that have deposits in excess of 250,000, that goes to our bank network. Basically, they're able to get full FDIC insurance on that by spreading it out across a network of banks. After that, we launched our corporate card and then we launched accounts payable most recently in last month. We keep building and we we kind of have like a quarterly release schedule in terms of major products that, that come out. So we have a lot more coming out. There might be more out there by the time this interview posts. But yeah, it's we're moving as fast as possible without trying to spread ourselves too thin. Yeah, we try to release as fast as possible our episodes because startup world moves so fast that we don't want our episodes to be outdated. Absolutely. And like we just try to listen to our customers. You know, we are obsessive about you know, recording customer feedback and having sales conversations with our customers and making sure that what it is we are building is truly aligned with their needs and helps them grow their businesses. So that is really how we think about like our roadmap is is really like what, you know, what helps our customers get their job done better. So let's talk about your customers then, right? How would you describe your typical customer and how are you getting to them? Yeah. So our typical customer is, you know, a company Generally, anywhere from 30 to 100 employees, well, we certainly have companies that are bigger than that. And, and those companies are generally in, in some sort of growth mode. Again, Row is great for companies across verticals and across stages within their life cycle. That's the design. It's not supposed to be specific to one customer type. But I would say the companies that come to us most frequently, it's generally when they're growing. They're like, I, you know, I have 10 people. I'm about to have 30 people. I need to change all my systems because this is not scalable. You know, companies that are shrinking, companies that are static, we are like still super helpful for them in terms of just being more efficient. But realistically, like we see the demand from anybody in any vertical that's growing. We don't really think about like, you know, vertical specific solutions. We're not, I kind of have a different opinion. I know there's this market view that there's going to be banking for X, Y, and Z, banking for plumbers, banking for architects, banking for consultants. I'm not sure that's true. I kind of disagree with that. I think, first of all, it's actually really hard to be excellent at commercial banking. And I think there's only going to be a couple people that actually figure that out properly. And I think that, you know, if you do those solutions right, there is enough similarity between every vertical. You can build your product properly where where it is interchangeable for the most part. Now, what that means for us is there are certain verticals that we're not great for. We're not great for like very traditional brick and mortar companies. We're not great for coffee shops or restaurants or things like that. You know, we generally think about our customers as people in an office, whether you're a technology company, whether you're a finance company, whether you're a you know, design company or consulting company. That is generally who we, who we seek to serve. But that is, you know, most of the market when you think about corporate banking. Yeah, and, and digital banking is also a game of scale, right? You can't survive with just a couple hundred thousand clients. What techniques or tactics are you using to reach the scale, particularly since this is a highly regulated industry? So we think about scale a little bit differently than other people, actually. Um, you know, we think about scale in terms of in terms of volume rather than in terms of like seats or companies. We are always trying to be very careful about like how we scale the business because 
we know that one company could be worth from a volume perspective, 10 or 100x what, what another company could be worth to us. And we know that there are companies where we can really help their make a huge impact and companies where frankly, like all they need is a basic checking account. And there are so many better options in the market that frankly, like have are more basic than what we offer today. So we actually do say no a lot, or we refer people to other businesses because we want to make sure that every company that is on row, we are able to like help them set them up for success. You know, generally those companies that we send somewhere else, we say to basically come back to us and when you guys are a little bit bigger, but if you're just a team of one or two, like honestly, there are better options. So as we think about scale, we think about it more like enterprise SaaS company and less like a consumer neobank that, that needs like millions of users. Yeah, we do need scale, but you know, scale comes in lots of ways. A company with a hundred people has the same scale as a hundred companies of one person. Very true. Very true. And what kind of transaction volume are you seeing today? So our transaction volumes are growing really fast. And it's one of our favorite metrics in terms of how engaged our customers are. As of December, we were processing you know, 1.9 billion of annualized transaction volume. And that, that keeps going up. So it's been you know, really exciting to see that grow from basically zero at the beginning of the year uh, to, that, to there. And clearly the story and the business proposition is resonating also with the venture capital side, right? You, you've had a couple of successful raising rounds. Tell us about those conversations. Yeah, I mean, we have, we have phenomenal investors. Um, we're super lucky to be able to be in business with you know, the firms that have, that have backed us and are incredibly grateful that they believed in our vision and, and made a bet on us. I think there's a couple of reasons why we've been successful there. One was sheer determination, especially at the very beginning. <laughs> the first check is really always really hard, or at least it was three years ago. I don't know. You know, the market keeps getting more and more aggressive these days, but certainly then it, was, it wasn't easy. It got progressively easier as we proved more things out. In addition to that, I think what we proposed at the very beginning was very counterintuitive. I think we got a lot of pushback that the large banks would just figure this out. There's no way to compete with JP Morgan and, and people like that. And, and we thought that was wrong. We thought that their customers demanded better and, and we could deliver better. As we proved that, that became less of a sticking point. And we started to play more into the people's thesis as people understood fintech and really came fully around to the point where they believe that that fintech is going to be a substantial portion, if not like disrupt financial services holistically. You know, there's really, we really view ourselves as very unique in the market. Like there is, we are really the only person that is doing, or only player that is doing really what we are doing and executing, you know, the strategy that we are executing. So as that happened, it, it certainly became easier and it became more of us sort of playing defense as opposed to kind of going out and, and, and pitching ourselves. But we, we're super lucky to had yeah, such great investors really from day one, all the way to our last round led by M13. And, and it's funny, M13 actually came in because so many of their portfolio companies were on row. And we got introduced to them and they're like, you know, we, we've heard of you guys. I've just written like four checks into like row accounts. And like, <laughs> I never heard of you guys three months ago. And so having sort of a presence in the market like that, I think was, was helpful in terms of just, you know, VCs actually understanding what it is we do and why we exist and why, you know, why their companies love us. So we'll, we'll keep doing more, but it's been, um, you know, it's been certainly great to have partners that really share our vision. That is their, the ultimate proof that they would want, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we've had a, a few of your of your investors, most recently Alexa Vantobo from oh, Fire Capital. And probably one of my favorite episodes by far. She was great. Uh, she's phenomenal. She's a force of nature. 
Absolutely. That's exactly what I wrote about her. <laughs> uh, great. So let's uh, let's talk. I mean, most of your clients, Everett, are not large corporates. They're medium or small size businesses. Yeah, right? we think about it as you know, as mid-sized businesses. You know, again, we work with certainly are continuing to work with larger businesses, but we think about kind of 30 to 100. And we think every quarter that range probably goes up by 10 to 15%. As we build more towards larger companies, we build more integrations that kind of support more enterprise grade, you know, ERPs. We actually think that we'll increasingly start to see larger corporates. But certainly today, like, yeah, most of our companies are, you know, are just in hyper growth mode. Yeah. Okay. So you, you mentioned they're, they're in hyper growth mode. But also a lot of small businesses have been affected over the last year by COVID, right? Totally. T- tell us about this experience because I remember I-, I followed you for a while and I remember when COVID hit, you know, companies like like Roll came to mind immediately to me. Yeah. Like, wow, I wonder how, how this is going to affect everyone. It was really interesting. I mean, COVID this the past year has obviously been challenging for for everybody, you know, personally and and from a you know economic business perspective. It also did show a couple of things, which is it really showed companies how far behind most of their existing legacy financial institutions were. Simple things like trying to send a wire in April of 2020 and being told, like, you have to go to a bank to do that. And it's like, well, like, all the banks are closed. Like, where am I going to do that? And, uh, you know, we had a lot of companies that were just, that came to us after that because they were like, look, it's literally impossible to use my bank. They want me to walk in. I don't want to walk in. Like, I'm scared. Why in the first place is this, like, the way that that they connect business, like it's because it's a, it's an old process that has been very gradually digitized, but you know certainly did not. It's very hard to like take a trillion dollar institution and say we're going to change things overnight. In addition to that, companies started working remotely. Right, most companies didn't work remotely. Today, almost every company is at least partially remote, if not fully remote. And we were really built around that concept because like that's the way that the digital world works. So adding new employees, giving them permission letting them issue cards and keeping track of people's spending in a decentralized world was what we were about from day one. And so people really saw the value of that when COVID hit and when you couldn't walk over to your accounting department and ask for a purchase order, you know, you had to do things in a streamlined and digital way. So we think that that was actually like a huge positive for us from a business perspective. We struggled through the same things that everybody else did in terms of, again, having to leave our office in New York in early March and figure out how to operate from home and generally just being careful about the world at that point. But definitely, I think it, it really showed our customers and, and our, our prospects how far behind like the rest of the, the industry was. I think before that, it wasn't as obvious. So on one end, it is an industry that's ripe for disruption, right? Uh, as you just mentioned, it's an old institution and that hasn't seen a lot of changes in, in a long time. So that's the opportunity side, but it also comes with its own set of unique challenges. What would you say are, are your biggest challenges these days? There's a lot of unique challenges that come with banking and fintech in general that are not true in other parts of the technology industry. If Facebook breaks something, Facebook isn't a company that operates a massive scale, but you know, even if Facebook breaks something, they can resolve it pretty quickly. Everyone's generally fine. You miss a couple minutes of Instagram, not the end of the world. In this space, you can't do that. We spent a year and a half basically heads down building our first product before we even let any customers on the platform. So while we want to make sure we can move at really sort of hyper speed in terms of shipping product and in terms of innovating, you know, there are natural sort of buffers in terms of just how fast you can move in this space versus something like consumer social media or something where you can constantly do A-B test, do experiments, things. Again, 
we are probably like one of, if not the most agile company in this industry, especially versus our like legacy peers. But there's still things that I think for good reason, make you move a little bit slower than other, other verticals. Yeah, the bar for your MVP is much, much higher than Absolutely. a social media company. I mean, that's why it's really hard. It's really hard to raise first dollar for fintech companies. I think as you get after that, it definitely gets easier. But most tech companies, right, you build an MVP and then you start raising money. Again, in, in a lot of fintech, it's it's like your MVP is, you know, is going to take a year and, and cost a lot of money to build. And so you really have to raise earlier. You could create designs on a in Figma, but that's not really going to prove anything. Everyone kind of knows what it should look like. So that is a sort of nuance to the space that it does make it harder to start companies, frankly. But I think, thankfully, as the investor community understands the space better and better, again, like more earlier founders and entrepreneurs getting that shot to build that, that first product. I think that's a really positive development. And ever as you think of the future of the institution, the future of Roe, what comes to mind? What's your ambition for the next, let's say, five, 10 years? I mean, we want to take a meaningful part of this market. We really believe that customers will be one in this space via who has the best product and the best technology, period. Not who is the biggest institution, not who has the oldest brand or the most spends the most on advertising. We think this is a product-led game. And so our only objective over the next five years is to listen really carefully to our customers and build what they want and what they need and, and surprise them in, you know, in good ways. So that's sort of what we're trying to do during that period. I think the market will continue to evolve at really fast over the next five years. I think there's a lot happening in a lot of different spaces in the market, including DeFi. We believe there's opportunities to do things there. But fundamentally, like what we really just care about is partnering with phenomenal companies and growing with them and scaling with them and making their lives easier. So we hope we'll be a lot bigger in five years. But frankly, like what really matters is just that customers continue to continue to help our customers succeed. Everett, before we started recording, I, I mentioned that we we have quite a few listeners who are entrepreneurs or, or also people who are considering taking that leap. And you were in the corporate world before. So I, I think we can hear some lessons or reflections from you about that transition. I think that it's great for a certain type of people, a certain type of person, right? There are a lot of people working at you know large corporations, be it in finance or elsewhere, that have a lot of ideas and feel like they probably don't want to spend the next 10 or 20 years working inside the system like that. Similarly, there are people that thrive in those institutions. And I think it's as much about like self-awareness as, as anything else, right? Understanding like what, which type of person you are and are you comfortable leaping into the unknown? Are you comfortable taking that risk? And I would say like, look, I, I'm, I only have my own journey really to go on. And as a reference point, I think everybody experiences it a bit differently. But from my perspective, this was always something that, that I wanted to do. I loved building businesses when I was younger. That was kind of like my hobby was building small businesses. I knew that I was going to work in on Wall Street for a defined period of time. I thought it was five years. It ended up being 10. I actually really loved it uh, before I built, built a company. I think most people that end up leaving feel that way. They had something in them that always like drew them towards entrepreneurship. I think people that leave for, you know, because they think they're going to make a lot of money or because they hate their job. I think those are the wrong reasons. Although certainly people do that and are successful, but I think it has to be just internally driven. And no matter if you're working at a big company, small company, someone else's startup, it doesn't matter. I think it's every entrepreneur that I've, I've known that that's been successful has been, has been just 
almost 100% internally driven because like there's nobody else. Once you start, there's nobody to blame if it doesn't work. It's on you and your partner. I'm lucky to have a phenomenal co-founder and partner, but it is, you're in the driver's seat. Some people love that. Some people are not about it and want to, don't want to have to like figure things out every single day. They want to be, be able to, to follow instructions and, and to kind of have clarity on like what the next five years of their life is going to look like. Again, I, I don't think entrepreneurship is for everybody. I think it's really popular now. You know, it kind of ebbs and flows in terms of popularity over time. But I do think people that, people that really want to do it, you don't have to tell them. Like they know, like it's, it's in them. Yeah, absolutely. Great, Everett. So before we let you go, I do want to ask you a little bit about your personal side. And maybe you can tell us if, if you have any, any hobbies that you like outside of Rogue. I mean, I used to have a lot of hobbies. I have a two-year-old these days. So my hobbies these days are generally relegated to like Frozen and Legos and, uh, you know, <laughs> things of that nature between work and being a parent. It, that's about all the time I have. So, but that's been, it's been so, you know, phenomenal and rewarding and it's been great. I gotta say Legos sounds amazing. <laughs> Legos are great. I love yes. Legos. I forgot how much I like Legos uh, <laughs> until very recently. Outstanding. Well, Everett, thank you for joining us. Uh, congratulations on everything you've built at Row, And I'm sure we'll be seeing a lot more from you and the team. And, and also we'd love to see you around campus once things are normal. I won't be here, but the next generation would love to see you. Absolutely. And, uh, anytime. You're, you're now a friend of, of Wharton. Okay. Thanks, Miguel. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. It means a lot and helps spread the word to more listeners. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. We also want to extend a special thank you to our show editor, Rafael Ostria. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. 